Now, we turn to Romans, the ninth chapter, and um, we have been here for quite some time. But tonight we're going to focus again on verses 6 through 18. Romans chapter 9, we're focusing on verses 6 through 18. Election and the promise, or if you want another title for it, you note takers, you might say election and the covenant of grace. Let's bow in prayer before we read. Again, Heavenly Father, we come to this magnificent portion of Scripture in which we come as close as is possible to your mind. And yet it is still impenetrable, and you are the God who is beyond understanding. And yet our great comfort is in knowing that you are the sovereign God that you are, and that those things that are far beyond us are not beyond you, and that all things are ordained under your sovereign decree in such a way that man is still responsible for his sin, and yet you glorify yourself in the salvation of sinners and even in the reprobation of the wicked. These are awesome thoughts, and for these thoughts and for these passages... We need reverent minds. And so once again, we humble ourselves and ask for those those blessed things that accompany reverence, awe, an understanding of submission to the authority of your word, the work of your spirit within our lives. And we pray that what we see here tonight will help us to understand more greatly who you are, what you have done for us in Christ, and even how we are to lead our children to the Lord. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 9, beginning with verse 6 through verse 18. This is the word of God. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named." This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now I must tell you that in the churches in which I grew up, 
portions of Scripture such as Ephesians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 9 were not touched on. It was as if they did not exist in Scripture. And even though the ministers certainly did preach salvation by grace, what they gave with one hand they took away with the other. They would preach salvation by grace and then they would present faith in such a way that faith actually was made into a work. But we come to this passage and this, as we have seen from our several glances at it so far, this is a mountain peak in Holy Scripture. And as I've said before, it requires a reverent mind. It is true, as Calvin says, that we may not mount up to the blinding light of God's decree and peer into His sacred counsels. But in this passage, the Lord, I think, takes us as near there as is humanly possible and reveals to us what we need to know about His sovereignty and man's responsibility and all of these things so that we may live lives that glorify God. All of our questions are not answered. Of course, God is the incomprehensible God. Now this is the fourth sermon on Romans 9, and a short review I think would be in order. The first sermon dealt with Paul's sorrow over Israel's unbelief. He says in verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And it was a very important observation as we have moved into this chapter that deals with the sovereignty of God, that in no way does that remove from Paul's heart a longing to see others come to faith in Christ. Election, sovereign free election, is not a hindrance to evangelism. Rather, it is our only hope in evangelism, because God has determined to save a multitude which no man can number from every kindred and tribe on earth. So we saw Paul's sorrow over Israel's unbelief and the fact that God still has a plan for Israel and what that means will have to be unfolded over time as we come all the way into the 11th chapter of the book of Romans. So with Paul it's necessary to keep in mind that he has an argument and he's unfolding and we have to stay with that argument and follow his reasoning. In the second sermon we went mountain climbing together. I hope that you remember that. And we saw Paul's doctrine of God in the passage. And then as we reached the dizzying heights, we gazed over the breathtaking reality of what it means that God is sovereign over His world and sovereign in the salvation of sinners. And then in the third sermon, and a number of you were absent for that, we looked at the questions that are sometimes raised implicitly and explicitly by detractors from God's sovereignty and how Paul answers them in this passage. Is God faithful? Is God just? How can we be held responsible if God is sovereign? All of those questions Paul deals with in this chapter and we concluded that we were debtors to mercy alone. Now we come to focus upon the relationship between election and the covenant of grace. The promise, and there must be at least two additional sermons on Romans 9 as a follow-up to this one, but the promise of the covenant of grace as we see all the way back in Genesis that He is a God to us and to our children after us. How do election and covenant relate? Well, that's the first thing we see as we come to the passage tonight. Election and covenant. Election and covenant. So let's read again verses 6 through 8. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, 
For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. You see the word promise? Are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year. I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Now the point here of course is that God's word never fails. And even if there are things that are said tonight that are perhaps new to you or perhaps you don't grasp, grasp that. God it's a promise keeping God. When he has given his promise to his people he keeps his word. You will never have to worry about God being frustrated that His promise is not being fulfilled, or frustrated that His sovereignty is not being acted out, or frustrated that His plan is somehow thwarted by man. None of that. God is God. And you never need worry about the thought that somehow maybe God is different than what He says in His Word. He says he is trustworthy, but maybe he's something else. You need never worry about that. God is God, and he is a promise-keeping God, and his word never fails. So the promise is fulfilled to the true Israel, which includes a remnant of racial Israel, and that was always God's plan. That's the purpose, in large measure, of the chapter. God never promised to save every Israelite, God never promised to save all head for head. He never promised to save every one of those descended from Abraham. Now back in chapter 2 of the book of Romans, verses 28 and 29, we see that the Apostle Paul is really reflecting on what he has already written. In Romans 2, 28 and 29, when he says, Romans 2, 28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, those thoughts actually control the discussion in the passage that we're looking at this evening. R.L. Raymond has said it well. God promises to Israel have not failed because God never promised to save every Israelite. Rather, God promised to save the elect, true Israel, within Israel. And he rightly points to verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now this is the fundamental difference between that system of theology that calls itself dispensationalism and that system of theology that calls itself covenant theology or reformed theology, which is the position of your pastors here. Now we want, we, we want to come to this passage and understand that in Scripture the Lord works with us by way of covenant. And that is very, very clear here. God's covenant of grace is His oath-bound promise 
to pour out His love and affection upon His people to save and to keep us and to be a father to us. He is a God to us and we are His children. And as He works through history, the Lord works in the line of families. So the covenant of grace in large measure is something that is worked out in God's sovereignty through the family. So how does the line of the covenant run? Well, the answer given in our text is through Isaac. And then it makes it plain. Through Isaac, not Ishmael. Through Jacob, not Esau. And he makes it plain that God will save a remnant of racial Israel when he says in verse 27, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Now that remnant is undoubtedly a very large remnant, but it is still a remnant of racial Israel. Now I want you to notice the language, children of the promise, in verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So what he's saying is simply this, not everyone who claimed to be an Israelite really was. Not everyone who was descended from Abraham was a child of the promise. So when he speaks of the children of the promise, this is covenantal language, and their inclusion and their spiritual birth is according to the promise. Now, God makes a promise. And when God makes a promise, it's not a maybe, it's not an if, it's not dependent on us or what we do. There is nothing conditional about the covenant of grace. There is nothing conditional about the promise of God. It is a sovereign bond of union and communion. He didn't say to Abraham, would you like to be in covenant with me, Abraham? God condescended to make a covenant with him. And that covenant, of course, is still in existence with us today. So the covenant of grace is not conditional, but in its essence is unconditional. To put it another way, election and the covenant are coordinate. Election and the covenant are coordinate. And this is extremely important. Perhaps much more important than right now you might realize Because there are those who want to separate out election and covenant and to see them as somehow not coordinate. If the covenant and election were not coordinate, or let me put it differently, if the covenant were conditional, then we would be in or out of the covenant at will. We would determine our own salvation. There could be no assurance of faith and there could be no assurance of perseverance to the end. And I'm very concerned to hear Presbyterian ministers and people calling themselves Reformed referring to the covenant as conditional. That's the problem problem with the so-called federal vision, which may mean something to you and not to others. But it's a viewpoint in which everything is conditional. They use Reformed language, but it's not Reformed. Everything is conditional for them. Election is conditional, our status in the covenant, our perseverance, everything is conditional. And my friend, if you make the covenant conditional, it depends upon us, and that's the way right back to Rome. 
What was the Protestant Reformation all about if it was not about this? And so the covenant of grace is not a bargain. The covenant of grace is not a contract where God says, I do my part, you do your part, and then we'll see how it works out. It's not a contract waiting for us to fulfill its terms. The covenant is God's condescending love, the loving relationship between our Father who saved us and those whom he saves. So with whom is the covenant of grace made? I direct us to the larger catechism, question 31, for a quick summary of what the Bible teaches. Question 31 of the larger catechism says, The covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam, and in him with all the elect as his seed. Let me read it again. The covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam, and in him with all the elect as his seed. So you see, it's made with Christ and his elect, and there can be nothing conditional about the covenant of grace. There's no conditionality there. And the covenant cannot be broken, not in its essence. And so the promise of God to be the God of our children relates to all of the elect, not to all physical children. And that's what he says in this passage. The covenant of grace, even as we see it in relation to racial Israel, does not include every child head for head. But it includes those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world to be saved. So what does this tell us about how to view children of believers? How should we view our children? How should we educate our children? What implication does this have for our child rearing? Well, let's work this out just a bit. There are those who are externally related to the covenant people of God. One of those mentioned here, for example, is Esau. He was externally related to the people of God. He had the sign and seal of the covenant. He was brought up in the sphere of the covenant. So there are those who are externally related to God's people who receive the sign of the covenant but who will never internalize the gospel. All children of believers are in the sphere of the covenant but not all are in the covenant. They hear the same promises. They hear the same word read. They hear the same word preached. They hear the same Bible stories at bedtime. They're reared in the same environment, but they respond differently. The promise, however, is absolute, which means the true covenant child is the elect covenant child. For if anything is clear in this passage, election and covenant are coordinate concepts. Because grace is always particular, always. So Paul says that God attains his covenantal promise... And he does so through election. So in the line of the continued generations, from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, election is at work. And the chief means of evangelism, the very first front of evangelism, is covenantal evangelism, our children hearing the gospel in covenant households. So in the line of continued generations, election is at work and God's covenant will stand and last forever and his promise will be fulfilled. So there's an internal and an external aspect to the covenant of grace. Think of it this way. 
There are those who claim to be Christ's who are members of a local church body, but they don't know the Lord. Externally, we would say they are part of the church. We don't know the heart, but when Christ comes again, He will separate out the wheat from the tares. There are those who are merely externally related to the church and those who are truly internally related to the church. Well, the covenant and church also should be thought of in the same way. There are those who are externally related to the covenant who are not internally related to the covenant. So there's an internal, external aspect to the covenant of grace, but the essence of the covenant relates to the elect seed. That's his point here. So there are two things to see. First, when we think of our children and we love our children, then Paul's attitude at the beginning of this chapter may well be ours with regard to wayward children. What is Paul's attitude toward racial Israel? Great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Every parent knows within his heart who loves the Lord Jesus Christ and wants his child to know Christ. Yes, I would be willing to be cut off if it meant the salvation of my child. And so Paul's attitude toward racial Israel might well be in some instances called for by parents. You will never know, however. You always pray for your children, even if that children child is a wayward child, because you don't know anything about God's secret election in relation to that child. But the second thing is this. We need to ask ourselves, what is our parental responsibility as we rear our children in the sphere of the covenant? Our parental responsibility is to hold Christ before our children in our lives and with our words, and to teach them the Christian faith, and to teach them the Bible, and to pray with them, and to pray for them, knowing that regeneration and conversion are God's work, not yours and not mine. If I may quote from uh, Professor David Inglesma, because I think he's absolutely right here. Professor Inglesma says, Viewing their children as God's covenant children, believers must approach them as elect children in their teaching and discipline, even though there may indeed be reprobate and unregenerated children among them. Election determines our approach to our children. So he says election determines the approach. All the children must receive the instruction that the regenerated must have and from which they will profit by means of this rearing and the nurture and admonition of the Lord, the covenant promise will work the fruit of conversion in the elect children, and it will expose and harden the others. So that is our calling and our duty. So we do not distress our little lambs. Rather, we teach them the Christian faith. We don't hold them off from teaching the Christian faith until we see some evidence of regeneration or until we know that a conversion has taken place. Election must determine our approach to child rearing. God's word does not fail, and God has promised to work until Christ comes again 
through the generations of Christian families, bringing his own unto himself. And in most instances, and probably with rare exceptions, conversions will follow. Well, that's first. The second thing we see as we move on in the text is that Paul stresses that there is no human merit in our salvation, none whatsoever. No human merit. We contribute no merit at all. Notice verses 9 through 13. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of His call, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Paul says, for the language of the promise is this, or the way the ESV puts it in verse 9, for this is what the promise said. So he goes to Sarah. And he says, you remember back there in the Old Testament that Sarah was barren. She was past the age of childbearing. She was 90 years old and would give birth to a son. And Isaac was the child of promise. Now what's the point? The point here is the children had done nothing good or bad. They had not yet been born But God's purpose of election was at work. Isaac was the child of promise, and there is no human merit involved in it at all. The birth is by God's grace. And human merit is totally and completely excluded. So in the fourth chapter of the book of Romans, you might remember how the apostle puts it. When he says in verses 3 and 4, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are counted as a gift, but as his due. Are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. No human merit whatsoever. But then the Apostle Paul is not satisfied to stop there. He would take you to another patriarchal story, narrative, to show that there is no human merit in our salvation. And so he illustrates this also with Rebekah in verses 10 through 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of his calls. She said, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Again, the same father, the same mother, but election determined that the covenant promise was to Jacob and not to Esau. Now I recognize that when we speak of electing grace, we need to understand this is in the mind of God. It is not arbitrary. It is free. It is sovereign. He is not bound by anything outside of himself when he makes his choice. But he has his own plan, his own purpose, and it is not arbitrary. 
But there are many who would come to this chapter because this chapter is a very high, lifted up, exalted chapter that underscores these things in no uncertain terms. And they want to escape it, and they want to get away from it, and they don't want to have a God who chooses one and does not choose another, and who elects and who reprobates. They won't have that. And so they try to get away from it. And so there are those who say that this refers to nations and not to individuals. But nations are not the exclusive point of the chapter. Paul consistently refers election to individuals, not of works but of him that calleth. Calling is consistently individual in Paul's thinking. The point is they are not all Israel who are of Israel, which points again to individuals. Jacob and Esau, yes, nations came from them, but they were individuals. And there are too many indications and connections with Paul's theology of election and calling to discount Romans 9 as applying to individuals. The point of it all, the essential issue is that our salvation depends on no human merit. When I was a boy, I went with a minister to another church where he was invited to speak. And uh, he presented things in the somewhat typical way of uh, this concept of freedom of the will. Uh, that, uh, yes, man is a sinner, and yes, he's fallen, but his will's pretty good, and he can make the right choice. And afterward, there, were, there was a group of people who came around him and very sweetly and graciously and gently challenged him to rethink his theology. Now, I was just 13 years old. I was newly converted. All of this was new to me. But even then, I listened carefully and something was ringing true. If I'm saved and I'm a sinner and I'm fallen and I'm lost and I'm undone, what can I contribute? And there are those who fear that if you say to the sinner, you can contribute nothing, that somehow that's going to keep people from coming to Christ. Actually, the opposite is the case. If you tell the sinner that he contributes something, even a small something, then there is an element of pride that remains. He is still dependent upon himself and not totally upon the sufficiency of Christ. But if with the Bible, when we minister the gospel, we say in whatever way the conversation leads or in the preaching of the word, you and I contribute absolutely nothing. No merit whatsoever to our acceptance with God. Then you see, I'm left where God wants me to be as a lost sinner but elect whom He intends to save. Recognizing that He alone is the Savior and that I can offer nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to Thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, hopeless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. And Paul wants us to see in this chapter that we contribute nothing. We want that deadly doing of the sinner to be completely dead in his thinking. So that he understands he contributes not one thing. And I'm very fearful for those who are converted, you notice my quotation marks, 
sometimes in settings in which they are constantly taught in one way or another that they do contribute something or faith is made into a work in the way in which it is presented. Because I fear in many instances, even though God is a God of grace and can save even muddled thinking, muddled minds about this, nonetheless I fear in some of those settings there are people who are trusting and relying upon something they do or something they contribute. And Paul's purpose in this chapter is to say that's just not true. It's not the case. Which leads us to the third thing, third and final thing. We see in this chapter salvation by sovereign mercy. Sovereign mercy. Verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills, and he says, look, you are completely and utterly in my hand. Now he's anticipating an objection here in verse 14 about those who say that he's unjust, and we dealt with that in the last sermon. But the point is, God has sovereign right to show mercy and compassion to whomever he wills. So that in verse 16, he makes it so plain, it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but God that showeth mercy, says the authorized version so beautifully. It does not depend in the least on man's volition. He says that. It doesn't depend on man's will. Many places you see this. All over the Word of God we are taught this. One of those passages that is read so often in evangelism is um, from John 1. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Wonderful. What's the next verse? Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So he teaches by using Pharaoh here as the biblical example of this in verses 15 and 17 where he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And in verse 17 again, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So Pharaoh is the biblical example and he quotes, Paul does, Exodus 9, 16, And he essentially says, God's glory is shown in the salvation of his people. But God's glory is also shown in the punishment of the wicked. That God's name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. Now God takes no sordid delight in the death of the wicked. That's not the point. But God does delight in displaying His divine attributes, whether grace and mercy preeminently, or justice, even in the punishment of the rebel. 
And so he says in verse 18, which we'll have to look at more next time, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now the hardening is judicial hardening. It is deserved. It is Pharaoh with all of his pride and all of his sin, and he is hardened. As he hardens himself, he's judicially hardened by God, and this is going on throughout the first portion of the book of Exodus. Judicial hardening is deserved, but salvation is deserved by no man, by no person. He has saved us by His sovereign grace. He has disposed our wills toward Christ and His powerful efficacy. We are no more deserving than another, and that bows us into the dust. And it assures us of faith. For if behind my trust in Christ is God's sovereign promise to save, behind that is His electing grace, and no one can alter God's eternal decree to save His own. And so sometimes we sing, if I may quote it, By grace I'm saved, grace free and boundless. My soul believe and doubt it not. Why stagger at this word of promise? Has Scripture ever falsehood taught? Know then this word must true remain. By grace you too shall heaven obtain. By grace none dare lay claim to merit. Our works and conduct have no worth. God in His love sent our Redeemer Christ Jesus to this sinful earth. His death did for our sins atone, and we are saved by grace alone. By grace, oh, mark this word of promise when you are by your sins oppressed, when Satan plagues your troubled conscience, and when your heart is seeking rest. What reason cannot comprehend, God by His grace to you will send. By grace, This ground of faith is certain. So long as God is true, it stands. What saints have penned by inspiration, what in His Word our God commands, what our whole faith must rest upon is grace alone, grace in His Son. Now that's Paul's purpose here. That's his point. And that, that's what makes the gospel good news. Because it doesn't depend upon our merit or effort. But it depends upon what God has done for us in Christ. So God will be glorified in the salvation of his people. And God will be glorified in the reprobation of the wicked. And I would have you turn to one final verse before we are done, and that is Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4, in which by divine inspiration the writer says, Proverbs 16, 4, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. 
That's comprehensive. God is God. 